here we go. So, Brian, you um, you you touched on an important point there, um, because um, it is actually part of Western culture of delayed gratification. Now, uh, the Buddha actually re uh, refers to that as a woeful state. Hmm. He called it the animal world in the sense of you do what you're told to do without getting the reward for it. And we'll talk about that later. Might be part of Christianity as well. <laughs> but, well, it absolutely does. That's, I mean, it's deeply, deeply buried in our culture is <clears throat> you go to work for the master and do what the master tells you, and eventually he'll feel good about you and reward you. <clears throat> And that's deeply buried into our culture um, that we don't have so much in, in Asia, uh, mainly because of the, uh, the quality of the authoritarianism that Western uh, mentality has been in a hierarchy. And so each individual person is raised as if they were in a hierarchy where there's always someone way up there who can really hurt you if you don't toe the line. And when somebody comes up and says, no, there isn't, I'm, a, I'm as top as I can get, they'll say, oh, no, after you die, you'll eventually have to pay your taxes. <laughs> and so... Um, that's the whole idea, then, is the authority, which is really, really the foundation of Buddha's uh, concept of right view, bringing in the Eightfold Noble Path. So starting back with that, let's look at it from this way. The Buddha taught Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, and that we can either hear that as Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, or we can hear that is dukkha, 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 more dukkha. Let me inspect the dukkha. I'm really in the dukkha. I'm going to find a pony in that poor shit dukkha someplace. Let me go deep into meditation and really understand the nature of this dukkha. And then I'll be really, really insightful and really wise about dukkha. Right? And eventually, the, the dukkha, because of my understanding and wisdom, I suppose, the dukkha will become exhausted, and then I'll be free of it. Now, that's the general way that people in the West think of it, because that fits the Western mentality of delayed gratification. That does make sense, yeah. Okay. But really what we're talking about is noting the dukkha, is to see something as dukkha immediately as you see it as dukkha, get out of it. Dukkha, dukkha naroda. Can you translate naroda as getting out of it, or <laughs> what does that getting mean exactly? Getting out of it, exactly, exactly. Okay. You can actually see that... Uh, um, Indo-European language in that word neuroda as a negative or as a nine or a neon or a nye 
all of these words that come out of that uh, original whatever language it was. So Nirod. So you could say Erod. Dukkha and Dukkha erosion. Okay. Okay, let it rot right now. And this is a different way of practice, but that's the way that the Buddha, in fact, it's so powerful and so important that that was the name that the Buddha used to refer to himself. He referred to himself as Tathagata. Okay. What does Tathagata mean? You know? Um... I've heard of it, but I'm forgetting exactly how you translate it. Is it like free or something? I don't know. Well, the really, um, let us say, um, raunchy old translation is thus gone one. Thus gone, okay. Thus gone one, okay. But now we have to dissect that to understand that the word thus is also meant this, thisness, or thusness, or this present moment, right here, right now. And uh, thus gone one means basically the one who has gone to the present moment. He's come out of his head He's come out of his delusions. He's come out of his daydreams. And he's come into this present moment. In the Sounds like a now. nice place to be. It's marvelous. <laughs> being in reality, being in the real world is, um, uh, let us say, has accolades in almost all traditions. <laughs> so, uh, this is actually what the teaching of Anapanasati is all about. It's bringing us to this present moment. Now, if Mahasi Sayadaw's method was practiced correctly, that would be exactly what we were doing. The noting is to note about what's going on right now. It's designed to get us into the here now, and what the wind, it winds up doing for Western students is it gets them into the habit of noting, thinking someday they'll get something out of it. <laughs> and so it goes deeper than that because it goes not only to do just the noting, but sometimes it goes so far as to, to actual labeling things to give them uh, not just names, but also even a story. Hmm. So that now the story is about what happens, and now I create a story, and while I'm telling myself a story about what happens, I'm not watching what's happening now. Right. And so the whole quality of the be here now is the quality of being able to see what's going on right now without necessarily telling ourselves a story about it because while we're storytelling, we're missing out on the action. 
An example of that would be in the old, old days of radio, they would have sports events like boxing or baseball. And the baseball announcer then on the radio would give a blow-by-blow. In fact, the whole word of blow-by-blow description comes from boxing back in the radio days. Makes sense, yeah. Except that uh, the blows are happening too fast and the radio announcer cannot give you an actual blow-by-blow. He can only give you a few of them. That it actually, you have to be there and to see what's going on because the description of it is not adequate. This is well known also in court that eyewitness testimony is unreliable. Okay, so now let's look at two kinds of witnesses. You have the first kind of witness is the one who was there. He saw what happened. He was at the scene. He saw the accident or the theft or whatever it was. And then later, the second kind of witness is the witness of telling the story on the witness stand about what he saw. Okay. If we can understand that quality in our own minds right at that point of meditation, we begin to recognize that what we mean by noting is by looking and seeing or investigating. It doesn't mean about telling ourselves a story about it. So noting is possibly the wrong word in English. That it's a problem with the translation of the word noting. Because in the suttas, it's very, very clear that what we're really talking about is investigation. To look at what we're doing to see clearly what's going on. Not telling a story about it, but really seeing it, because if we can really see what's going on, that means we can begin to understand a lot of stuff is going on. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff is going on. And so opening up to that a lot of stuff is going on places us in as part of the environment that we're in. But when we have an ego, when we are selfish, then we separate ourselves from the environment, almost from the point of uh, fear. That because there is fear of something out there, we withdraw and become separate from reality. But by noting things correctly, by being in the here now, by seeing the way things really are, you recognize that all that feeling of fear is inside. That it is not like the environment that you're in right now is not dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely not dangerous. You're completely safe. But why don't we feel safe? Why do we feel like that there's jobs to do and work to be done and something to make things whole and complete? Well, in fact, things are whole and complete right now already. Mm-hmm. This moment is a good moment. It's great. It's marvelous, especially if you go outside. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) Well, that was one of the statements that uh, Goenka used quite often. He used the statement, open nature, open sky. That that was the life of the Buddha, to live out in nature. To live with just the bare minimum, just the the things that we actually require or our actual need list. 
Right. We need a bit of protection from bad weather. We need clothing for uh, the sense of gadflies or heat or uh, rain clothing if we're out in the rain, whatever. So that we need clothing and shelter, we need food, and we need uh, medical attention from time to time. If we have those, those needs met, then there's nothing left for us to do. The work has been done. But yeah, in we're our still society, working. <laughs> but, but why are we still working is because, number one, we have been taught and trained to be dissatisfied with what we've got, that we should want more. The other one is, is that um, uh, at a very deep psychological level, I want. Therefore, if I want something that I don't have, that means psychologically I am missing something that I should have to be complete. And because right. I don't have it, I'm a victim to its loss. Because I don't have that car I want, I feel bad. In fact, right now, I'm not driving. Why should I want the car now? Why don't I just, in fact, wait and want the car when I actually need the car? Right. But, oh, no, you know the, the mind of the young man. He wants it, 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 he wants it. <laughs> we drive ourselves nuts with that, literally. And so we wind up growing up grinding in old bad habits that we picked up as children. And the easy thing then to do is to begin to see these old bad habits as they arise so that we can begin to make changes to them. If we are not aware of these old bad habits as they arise and, and do their deeds and pass away, then we suffer under the consequences of it and we don't even know why. This is the whole point about doing an investigation. And so we learn to investigate what's going on now. Basically, there are four um, things that need to be investigated. The body, the feelings, the mind, and the mental objects. This is the Satipatthana the four foundations of mindfulness. Now, in this word mindfulness, it's not really an excellent translation of the word sati in Pali. In fact, I don't even know where the word comes from because I never, until I got into Buddhism, ever heard of the word mindfulness. There's a whole lot of English language words that are English, and we're supposed to know them as English words that you never hear outside of Buddhism. <laughs> Just like there's a bit of words in the Bible, that the only time you ever hear those words are either in reference to the Bible or it reminds you of the Bible when you hear them. That's true, okay. yeah. Mindfulness is one of those words that has been captured. Equanimity is another word that has been captured. Why? Because nobody uses the word equanimity or equanimous. No one. <laughs> not I don't really. know. If it, no, not unless it's in context of Buddhism. So there's some words that have come into use. Mindfulness is one of them. 
but mindfulness does not actually point us in the right direction. That, in fact, mindfulness itself could better be seen as the investigation. But the first thing that we have to do is to wake up. That's Tati. To wake up. Okay. Now, going back to Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, basically the distinction between Dukkha and Dukkha, Naroda is Sati. Dukkha, mm. Dukkha, 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 Sati. Now it's Dukkha, Naroda, if we follow it right. Okay. All right. Makes it sound so, so easy. It is. It's really, really easy but not in the language that had been delivered, the English language of the suttas that had been passed down from people who translated stuff they didn't understand out of a language they didn't know into a frame of reference that they already had. Yeah, okay. And so we have to take it out of that frame of reference and put it into the frame of reference as something that we can do right now and do it easily, and become skilled at it right now. Everything has got to do with right now. There is no past, in fact. Air how you remember it, or air how you see things in the now that are referring to the past, like documents and books and history lessons and all of that. But I think you already understand that history books now, especially with Black Lives Matter movement coming up, the history books were written for a particular reason that everybody begins to understand it wasn't about states rights at all it never was states rights was a uh, side uh, thing to give it legitimacy and so you really really have to deep, dig deep but when we do that we're not really looking at the history or the past we're looking at what history has done to this situation that we have right now always the present moment. So I'm very, very curious and very much interested in history and all kinds of it, simply because I'm trying to understand what happens now. And the easier, easier way to understand how things got the way they are now is by looking at the process of all of that becoming over time to see how things are right this very minute. Okay. And we can do that at a, uh, on a historical level with humanity, and we can do it also on a personal level. And the Buddha was also very, very clear and very right about not dwelling on the past, that we can look at the past just enough to see the dukkha there, that that's really what we're looking at, is let's find the dukkha. And uh, you'll find that that's actually... A, pretty important part of the teaching of the Buddha. So okay. now that we're looking at Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, let's pull that apart. And the first thing that we do when we unpack it is we come up with the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, the first uh, Noble Truth is there is Dukkha, which is implied in Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Okay. The second Noble Truth is the cause of Dukkha. Now, this one is a major big deal. In fact, each one of the Four Noble Truths are major, major issues. They're noble. Okay, we have to wake up to suffering. We have to wake up to the cause of the suffering. And then, in fact, waking up, the first wake up to the call of the uh, cause of suffering 
when we begin to see uh, Loba Moha Dosa, the three daughters of, of Mara, the cause of suffering is greed, ill will, and delusion. Not the government's greed, not the, uh, uh, the ill will of the right wing, and not the delusion of the lies the politicians say. That's not your source of suffering. Your source of suffering is the greed that you have within your own mind, the ill will that you have within your own mind, and uh, the uh, delusions that we each one of us has within our own mind. When I say you, I'm not talking about you, particular Brian, that's sitting there feeling bad when I say that. <laughs> it's true, though. It's true for all of us. It is true. Right. But this is what brings up the whole quality of doubt. Why? Because we're out there looking for somebody to fix our problem. Who made this mess? Can I get my... Because when we were really little, when we made a mess, my mommy would change my diaper. When I got hungry and bellered for food, my mommy would deliver food. So we have, as a, uh, in some cases of being a victim and being in the one-down position, there are benefits to it. If we have someone who can come and help us, we're looking for a helper. And many of us grow up then looking to be a helper. And there's a lot of stuff that we can get help with. We can get help with the taxes with an accountant. We can get help with the police, with a lawyer. We can get help with ill, uh, uh, Ill feelings uh, from a doctor. But we are going to have a whole lot more trouble finding someone to give us help for bad thinking, wrong thinking, inappropriate thinking, the kind of thinking that causes us suffering, and the kind of feelings that we cause ourselves as suffering. Basically, I'm making that distinction because in the beginning, most people think that thinking is only verbal thinking. That in fact, there's a lot of different uh, ways of thinking, and, and feelings is a way of thinking. Right. And often we're in a dialogue between the verbal and the feeling part of us. And so we tell ourselves, you should do this, and then we feel bad because we haven't done it yet. All right, so there's a dialogue that's going on, and we'll talk about that. We have okay. to actually wake up to that dialogue to see how thoughts and feelings are interconnected. This is part of the noting practice. But the noting here is not telling ourselves a story or labeling, but rather to clearly see how the mind is functioning because we begin to understand that nobody's going to fix my problem but me. And so the next quality of doubt is, am I up to it? Can I do it? Can I, in fact, fix these problems that I've got. Because in the beginning, we start off in victim, victim's position with the idea that, no, that's why I'm out looking for a guru or a meditation teacher or some monk someplace or maybe a priest or a preacher because we are looking for help on the outside. But eventually we have to recognize, no, only I can do it. And then the question is, am I up to it? 
the answer to that question is you need success. You need success. Success over and over and over again will build confidence that you have to know I can do it. I just did it. And with that confidence going, by the way, the poly word for that confidence is the word shrada. Okay. And it's often translated as faith, but it's not faith. Mm. Faith is in something that you don't know will work. Okay. And you have no idea. An example of that was Edison was working on the light bulb. You know, he's the guy who came up with uh, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And it took him years and tons of money to figure out how to make an incandescent light. And he was actually in competition with others to come up with one to make electricity actually useful by making light with it. It Back in the old days. But he knew he could do it because he was he was having experiments and he was gaining and he was gaining success inside of every failure. Inside of every failure, he could learn something. And finally, he learned that he had to use uh, a tungsten um, filament in an argon gas. And that was the first working light bulb. Why? Because argon is a noble gas. It doesn't interact. That's one of the things that makes something noble is it's above. That's why uh, the Buddha used that word, Aryan, words high class, noble. So a noble gas means that he's not going to mess with that tungsten, air how hot that tungsten gets. So he figured that out but he knew he could do it. Okay. That's part of the quality of our meditation is that, uh, that uh, insistence that I will be successful. That's a major, major quality of it. So now let's look at the Four Noble Truths as a part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Because now the doubt is about, does the path work? And when we have all three of those levels of doubt put a rest in the sense of, I can't get anybody else to do it, I'm up to the task, and I've got just the tools I need to do the task. Now we're good to go. Okay. When we have those three things, that's the full eradication of doubt. Until that, the student will continue to have doubts, many kinds of doubts, including the doubt about, am I doing it right? Is this the right teacher? Um, what's the point? That's a big one. What's it all about? <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And that those doubts will linger and remain so long as there's not success, that it's going to take actual success to start eliminating and reducing this doubt. Okay. All right, so now we begin to look at the method or the path or the way that we're going to do it. In fact, calling it the Eightfold Noble Path already is misleading because it's not a path. It's a method. It's a way of doing things, but sometimes we use the way as a path, like a parkway or a driveway. 
<laughs> funny about that because you park on the driveway and you drive on a parkway, but that's not my problem right now. <laughs> English people. <laughs> that's English for you, isn't it? Okay. So, um, it's not really a path, it's a method. And yet you can see that if we're applying the method during, uh, during a period of time, it's like going down a path. And so there's an analogy we can use, like getting off the path is like getting into the ditch. And so I'll use that analogy sometimes. Sometimes we can boogie down the road and sometimes we're in a ditch. The question is, if we're in the ditch, can we get ourselves back out of the ditch and back onto the, uh, onto the path? Can, in fact, we reapply the method? Because beginners, that's how it's going to be. In fact, it's, that's actually, uh, unless you're in a particular environment, and even then it's there, that our, our practice gains in spotty. We can get gung-ho for a few months and then lax for a new month and then gung-ho for a few years and then lax for a, a, a month or two or whatever like that. And that various things happen along the way so that even an advanced one will come to the point of saying, wow, I've got it now. I don't have to practice anymore. And then a few weeks later, he's winding back up in Dukkha and he's wondering, how did I get there? The answer was he weren't practicing the sati to keep it strong and we'll be talking a lot about sati because that is in fact a major quality of the eightfold noble path even though in the list that we have in the suttas is way down at the bottom like number uh six or seven or eight at the back of the path really the, um, there's a really excellent sutta that I would recommend everyone read. It's number 117 called The Great Forty. Because this is the exposition of the path. And the way the Buddha starts it off, he says, I'm going to teach you about right, noble uh, samadhi, or right a unification of mind with its factors and requisites. There's a difference between the factors. Factors are actually the outcome, or this is what it's like when the mind is unified. Okay. And then there are four requisites. By the way, the Siva is uh, the, um, the factors or the, the parts of the unified mind in the sense that um, when one's mind is noble, when you are free from want. If you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to go try to take something from someone. Okay? So, this is actually the way of looking at our sila is the outcome of a noble mind, not the cause of it. Though in our society, we teach our children a set of rules. You've got to do it this way. In the Buddhist society, they'll even give the children things like the precepts. They go to the Wat and how they hear it, Panati Pata, Ramani, Sakavadam, Samadhyami, Tenadana, Ramani. You've probably heard that someplace or another. Those are the five precepts in the Pali. Okay. But the real point is that these precepts are a natural outcome, not the cause of 
a mind is fit a mind is fit for work a mind is unified a mind is whole but there are four factors that are requisite to that and that the first requisite of the path is one's right view right view in other words our uh, way of looking at things now in the english language the word attitude would be uh suitable but let's talk about right attitude as a separate item of the eightfold noble path so okay. let's look at right view as just our way of seeing things and almost always we see things from a point of view from the place we are our self but noble right view is to be able to see things clearly as they are including compassion of being able to see the way other people are okay so compassion is actually an aspect of one's right noble view but that's a skill to be developed and it grows and the way that it grows is with sati sati is the number one skill to be developed in the sense of intentionally developing it and one's right view then comes along for the ride okay in fact you had one, enough right view just to call me <laughs> that was enough right view you heard this and saw that and said i'm going to give the guy a call okay so that's one's right view is i've got to do something about it you're actually able to see dukkha maybe not clearly yet but you saw enough of it to say i want out of this stuff i do not like the situation that i've been a lot of people are in denial they think that that's just how life should be yeah it's funny it doesn't nothing seems that bad and it shouldn't be that bad but i'm i'm in the rabbit hole in some sense so i uh, got to see where it leads you know life isn't really that bad but uh it could be bad okay. i guess well the only way to see how dirty wet uh and dark a rabbit hole is is by coming out of the rabbit hole and then going back in and then coming out again and then going back into it and now you begin to see that rabbit hole for what a rabbit hole really is it has its advantages but generally the rabbit does not stay in the rabbit hole <laughs> come out of it because we can see that it's not it's is may have a feature of safety but it's got other problems with it that in fact that's what we do we retreat inside because we feel safe there or at least safer that they we see the outside world is dangerous because we learn to see it is dangerous when we were kids why because kids want to do what they want to do and the adults want them to do what the adults want them to do and the kids going to get smacked if he doesn't do what he's told to do and so really uh instead of teaching kids with carrots we teach them with sticks <laughs> we don't ever give them the carrot we just dangle it out there someplace <laughs> but but um uh, knowledgeable animal trainers like dog trainers who can get dogs to do all kinds of things you didn't expect a dog to do what do they do they give the dog a treat every time he does the action 
But we don't raise our kids that way. We just beat them with sticks if they don't do what we tell them to do. And so our whole society raises us that way. And part of the job of the, let us call him the budding Dama dude, is to be able to see that the old ways of doing things is painful. We have to be able to see the suffering. And one of the ways of seeing the suffering is by sliding back into it or falling back into it and then getting out of it and recognizing how much better it is to be out of it rather okay. than wallowing in it and saying, this, this rabbit hole has got to have a prize in it someplace. Let me keep digging. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the basic difference between the meditations that people practice in the West and the actual way of practicing is that we're going up. We're not going down. We're brightening the mind. Okay, we're not going deep into meditation. Deep into meditation means deep into a kind of drowsiness or a sleep or um, um, a rumination. I have and some drowsiness actually... problems. <laughs> Pardon? I can tell you about. I have some drowsiness problems. I can tell you about that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let we need to see that drowsiness as a hindrance that we can come right out of rather than staying in it. Okay, there's several things to do about drowsiness, and the number one first thing that we should have been doing all along is taking a deep breath. But we'll get into that in a moment. All right. Let's stay with right sati and right view coming around to one's right effort. One's right effort is part of the Eightfold Noble Path that most people miss because there is some effort in it, but it's got to be the right kind of effort. And the, and the easiest way to describe it is right effort is just enough to get the job done. And once the job is done, the effort is no longer needed. And so yet is there a sense that the that job meditation. can get done? Huh? Is there a sense that the job gets done at some point, or is it like exactly constant? right? Okay. We're going to get into that in just a moment, okay? But the number one thing of a right view or right uh, uh, effort is to get the job done. Now we're going to break the job into two different groups, but the point of the job, of the actual job that we're doing, is to clean the mind of hindrances. There is a sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya. The name of it is Two Kinds of Thought. And the Buddha was very, very clear about it, that there are two kinds of thinking. There is wholesome thinking and unwholesome thinking. And that we could say that the hindrances are all associated with unwholesome thinking. And so coming out of unwholesome thinking into wholesome thinking is the job that needs to be done. Not much of a job. Except that we're in the habit of being in unwholesome thinking. So we go back into unwholesome thinking or back into the rabbit hole and then we come back out. But 
you see, it's also possible for someone to be in wholesome thinking, but they don't even have the awakeness or the awareness or the mindfulness or the sati to see the difference between unwholesome and wholesome thinking. And okay. so they go moving back and forth between wholesome and unwholesome. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was really big on that, that a lot of people get the idea that we as meditators are in unwholesome thinking or in hindrances 100% of the time. And that's not true. I certainly hope not. <laughs> very, very few people are in hindrance 100% of the time, and they generally die early, become CEOs, or championship wrestlers on the WWE, or president of the United States. In all cases, they are very unhappy, very miserable, and subject to being attacked from all quarters. There you go. But those of us who know how to find some pleasure in life do so. In fact, when we were really little children, we spent most of our time in play, in joy, in uh, uh, tearing our toys apart, in writing on the wall with crayons, all kinds of things, very pleasant to do. But over time, things happened, little traumas. And so these little traumas build up. That you've heard about post-traumatic stress disorder. Then before that, they called it uh, uh, battle fatigue. Before that, they called it shell shock. But even before shells, people had trauma in battle. Well, kids have... Kids have trauma in battle. Every day is a battle. I mean, these big people, and I'm a little fella. (laughs) And so Monty comes into the room, catching the little Johnny writing on the wall with crayons, and she gets unglued in whatever way her style is. Little Johnny remembers the girl, his mom getting unglued, more so than he'll remember the 10 or 20 minutes of joy he had on writing on the wall. She may, in fact, give him the punishment of cleaning the room, uh, cleaning the wall, and now he's going to really hate the cleaning of the wall, and that really destroys then his uh, joy of writing on the wall. He could have been a Picasso. <laughs> Maybe. Or a Rembrandt. But mom's more caring more about her wall. <laughs> All right. So this is how the stuff gets started. And uh, it's sure that when we're kids, we have tantrums and stuff. But as we grow older and older, we spend more time in mental tantrums and less time in joy. So that by the time that we're adults, we're like 80 to 90 percent in misery and only 10 to 20 percent in joy. And we need to turn that ratio around again, get back into a more normal state. And in fact, if we're really good at it, we can stay out of grumpy all the time because we can see it coming. He's having trouble getting the car started. Uh-oh. Pop the gas. Pop, pop, pop. Pop the gas. Starting. 
Never mind. We don't use it enough to where <laughs> every time we start, it's hard to start. Oh, man. So, back to what we were talking about. Back to right effort. There tends to be two kinds of right effort. One right effort is to use with the body, and the other right effort is to use with the mind. Okay? The right effort that we use with the body is to bring our breathing up to a quality standard. This is something that's missed in many of the meditation techniques that even talk about doing mindfulness of breathing. They think that they are just going to watch the old breathing. Where Anapanasati, the sutta, clearly says understanding the long breath as an in-breath and understand the out-breath as a long breath. In other words, two points of sati, the sati of the in-breath and the sati of the out-breath. Out-breath, long, deep sigh. In-breath, long, deep in-breath. The idea is, is to get the body oxygenated. Now, the Buddha didn't know about oxygenation, but he certainly knew about anapana and pranayana. That was already being practiced in the time of the Buddha, and it's well known in, uh, in yoga today. Uh, and so we begin to note the breathing. We begin to, to, <clears throat> to take longer deep breaths because we want to oxygenate the body as well as to clear the poisons out of the blood that can be cleared out by breathing correctly. That the body um, is built in a way that the kidneys and the lungs both work together. And that the kidneys only have to take out the big stuff if the lungs are doing their job. Hmm. Okay. And so breathing is uh, an integral part. If we learn to breathe properly, it will be enormously beneficial to your good health as well as tiredness, that one of the reasons why students get drowsy in uh, uh, meditation is because they're not breathing correctly. And they may be watching the breath, but it's a very shallow breath. And mm -hmm. not only that, but if you're intentionally watching the breath and paying attention to it, it actually does light up the frontal cortex. They have seen that with MRIs that we take conscious control of it. If we're actually consciously controlling to make sure that it's a long in-breath and a long out-breath, it's going to be much easier to stay with the breath than if we just lightly say, okay, I'm going to be watching the breath. And then the mind will wander away really easily, really quickly. Mm. Yeah, so it's interesting. I've heard a lot of instructions say, like, you should watch it, but try not to change it ever. Um, so I guess that could have been confusing to me, obviously. You're saying you should try to make it long breaths throughout the whole meditation. Yes. The distinction is, is that the kind of literature that those people are reading is much later literature. It comes out of 5th century A.D., the Vasudhimaga. Yeah. Okay. 
the thing, the correct way is, though, is let's not deal with this later literature because it's problematic, and we'll talk someday about the problematic issues of the Visuddhi Magga, and say that we're going to stay with the suttas. It's good to stay with what the Buddha taught if we're going to practice what the Buddha taught. And what the Buddha taught was long, deep in-breath and long, deep out-breath as the number one item on his list of Anapanasati. And everything is a training. So training ourselves for right uh, effort and training ourselves for right uh, sati, to wake up, to wake up completely. Actually, we can wake up in stages. There's more than one kind of waking up. I'll give you the example of every morning when people wake up in the morning, they wake up only enough to to know that now they're awake and they're laying in bed. Sounds about right. But they're not awake enough to actually get out of bed yet. That takes a little while unless there's a big emergency. This is what the snooze on snooze alarms is all about. (laughs) Very convenient. Well, they figured out that humans are like this, okay, that we wake up in stages. And when we, uh, when we become fully awake, we'll get up out of the bed we messed in or made or whatever. This is exactly the way that it is in, uh, in our meditation practice. Yes, we can wake up enough to see what the mind is doing, but we have to wake up enough to get out of what the mind is doing, to actually get out of bed, to get out of the hindrances. Yes, we want to note the hindrance as a hindrance. We want to see dukkha as dukkha. We want to see thoughts of the past as thoughts of the past, as not being thoughts of this present moment. Let's come back and be in the present moment. Thoughts of a wandering mind, a restless mind, is just wandering around, is not very pleasant. Okay, but sitting in the present moment, that's easy, that's comfortable. So basically, getting out of hindrance is the job to be done. And the right one's right effort is is to come out of the hindrances of the mind and to take a deep breath. That's one's right effort. And if we keep doing that by cleaning out the mind, in fact, there is a major point in the uh, the story of the enlightenment of the Buddha. After he fell into the creek and got out and recognized that uh, that starvation and um, austerities were not the path, and that the jhanas were also not the path, Yes, that's right. The Buddha did all of his jhana work before he became enlightened. Would you say part of the path, but not the path? Pardon? Would you say part of the path, but not the path? I don't know. Let us say that it's almost like the sila. That jhana is the outcome of correct practice. And then once one has correct practice, one outcome would be the, uh, the first jhana. And then 
after we become completely free from the hindrances in a, in a marvelous way, let us say uh, down to the level of fetters, when one has nothing to do with his time, then the jhanas are a pleasant way of, of spending your time. It's a pleasant abiding. The Buddha called it that, a pleasant abiding. <laughs> I think he was being snarky at that moment, but snarkiness sometimes doesn't come through in our translations. I'm sure, yeah. Okay. The jhanas are a pleasant... He who spends his time in jhana can be said to be spending his time in pleasant abiding. And that was Buddha's uh, stamp of approval. That was his only stamp of approval. Doesn't really make it sound like work is getting done when you're pleasantly abiding, but I don't know. Well, uh, that's because in that in that particular case, the job is well done. Because, in fact, it is a pleasant abiding because, in fact, you have um, finished with the hindrances in this present moment because in order to properly get in the proper second, third, and fourth jhana, one must master the first jhana. And when I say master, that means easily get into it, easily sustain it, and then easily move from it to the next. And we'll talk about this later, okay? But most people are trying to get jhana, the fourth and fifth one, through dullness rather than through the elimination of hindrances. Through dullness? I didn't know that was right. possible. Through Huh? I don't. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, it's kind of a shutdown, not a bright mind. Hmm. Okay. Um, so um, the way then to begin to understand is, let's look at it this way: the the middle path. What is the middle path? The middle path, the, uh, the original one, when he first talked to it in the Dhamma Chakrapavanta Sutta, uh, the Sutta goes that he um, said that the middle path was between sensual pleasure and um, the austerity. Now, Can you most explain people, what that means exactly? <laughs> I'm about to. All right, sounds good. Uh, the sensual pleasures that when most people hear that, the average ordinary uh, dude, uh, the one who's new to Buddhism, they hear that sensual and they immediately put Christianity terms to it. And then they use the word pleasure without quite understanding it, and then they go also, the, the term is used, sensual desire, or uh, pleasurable desire, and um, they, they get kind of confused. What the Buddha was actually doing, he was talking to the guys who had been with him for years, many of them for even more than the six years when he was out there, because he brought them with him out of the palace. Kandana and Chanda. The other two we're not sure of. Uh, the other three. Um, but there may be some place that, that would be an interesting point to, to research. Meanwhile, these were all guys who had been practicing with him in the jhana times. 
Okay. So he was speaking to them when he was talking about pleasure. Because what he was saying is, look, what we have been doing was working on pleasure with the jhanas and working on um, the uh, austerities, the self-flagellation, the harming oneself. And that neither one of these extremes worked. So in this regard, we can say people who were lusting after the jhanas and people who are hanging out in the brothels have the same point of view or the same intention as opposed to going on a diet or starving oneself or whatever, which is the other extreme. Okay. All right. So um, bear with me because this is a little bit complicated. If someone is, in fact, a jhana dude, and he falls out of the jhana without actually doing the real practice that the Buddha recommends, then when he comes out of jhana, where is he going to land? Uh, Back in his ordinary life. Yeah, okay. Okay. That's the way to look at it. They land back in their ordinary life, and your ordinary life filled with hindrances is a form of self-torture, self-punishment, <laughs> self-flagellation. Okay, so that may not be the sweet spot. Ordinary life is not the middle path. I guess that's the whole point of this, yeah. <laughs> ah, so what is the middle path? The middle path, then, is not the higher jhanas, nor is it the ordinary life that has hindrances, but it's the mind in that middle state where the mind is completely free from hindrances, a la, in fact, the real middle path point is, in fact, the first jhana, not the higher jhanas. Somewhere I heard... Fourth was ideal, and I, I'm like, that sounds like it would you take a long time. <laughs> okay, no, the fourth is not an ideal, and it doesn't take a long time. The first jhana is what takes a long time. The very skills that you need for the first jhana is what you'll use with the higher jhanas. Okay. Okay, the first jhana is the place that we need to be. Let me put it this way. If I had, uh, this was years and years ago when I was on some list or something before uh, Reddit altogether. And someone was talking about a conversation to where uh, the teacher and the student, and I don't know, I think it was the student who was driving, or maybe the teacher. The student, that's what it was. The student was, was sitting as passenger and the teacher was saying that he was going through the jhanas while he was driving. And this was posted. And my response to that is, is if I was a cop, I would have busted that dude uh, for a DUJ, <laughs> driving under the influence of jhana. Why? Because Why? in the jhanas, you cannot drive a car. <laughs> if you were in the first, fourth jhana, you could not get up, walk to the car, start the engine, and drive it away in the fourth jhana. You can't do that. That, in fact, even in the second jhana, if you spent 24 hours in the second jhana, more than likely when you came out of the second jhana, you'd, wind, you'd be in the hospital 
or in the morgue. <laughs> All right. Okay. You do not want to spend your time in these higher jhanas if you want to have a good, ordinary, wonderful life. What we need to do is to get the mind in a good, wonderful uh, state and keep it there. So in Sutta number 36, the Buddha winds up, in fact, I'm talking about this Sutta already, the Sutta where he's climbing out. And that's when he realized that it's the first jhana that is the path to enlightenment. That's the method. It's the first jhana is to eliminate the hindrances and keep the hindrances eliminated. And walk around, because you can, in fact, walk around in the first jhana. You can be delighted. You can think. You can control the mind. You see, the major difference between the first and the second jhana is, is the first jhana has the ability to apply and sustain the thought into what you want it to be sustained on, that you don't get distracted because you can sustain it. That's the okay. whole quality of the development of the first jhana is so that you can sustain it and stay in it. Because right now your only option is is to fall back into hindrances, which is the ordinary mind, which is off the path. Okay. So really the path is, how can we get ourselves into first jhana? The answer to that is anapanasati, because it's got all of the steps laid out. Everything that we need to do to bring about the jhana factors are in the anapanasati sutta. That's what it's designed for. Is And so you can say that the anapanasati is... Uh, the application of the Eightfold Noble Path. And the application of the Eightfold Noble Path with the first jhana, uh, excuse me, with Anapanasati, brings the mind into that state of first jhana, which makes the mind fit for work. This is the way Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it, is a mind that's fit for work. And we'll talk about that when we get into Paticca Samuppada, is how that operates. Because, in fact, the Paticca Samuppada, have you ever heard of that word, dependent origination? I've heard of that, yeah. Okay. When you understand Paticca Samuppada correctly, you'll understand that that, too, is also talking about jhana. Hmm. And when we have no jhana at all, that's when we wind up in suffering at the end of the list. But there are several places we can break off that sequence if we have the right presence of mind. Okay. And we want to develop that presence of mind in seclusion so that then we can practice later out in the world and still have that level of seclusion from the world. Mm. Okay. So we seclude ourselves first from the world and then we have to deal with the fact that we're not secluded from the world at all because we brought it in with us in the mind. <laughs> yeah. All right. And so now we have to seclude ourselves from the world a second time by first getting away from the world into seclusion and then secluding our mind from the world out of the hindrances. And to now the mind is really fit for investigation. 
The question is, can we keep it in that state of fitness? Okay. And what are we going to do with the mind that's fit for work, fit for investigation? We're going to begin to watch the thoughts, to monitor the thoughts, to make sure that there are wholesome thoughts and not unwholesome thoughts. In the regard that unwholesome thoughts were going to take us out of our present state, and wholesome thoughts are going to help keep us there, especially if the wholesome thoughts are about this present moment, the present state we're in. And so this is the practice that we do. The first uh, skill to be developed is the skill of getting into first jhana. Okay. And then the second skill is the skill of maintaining first jhana. And we need the skills of uh, the Eightfold Noble Path in order to develop this skill of jhana. Now, anapanasati itself is practiced for the fulfillment of the satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, which means that we're literally going to become mindful of or wake up the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind object. Think about a four-cylinder engine, and we're going to be operating on all four cylinders. All right. Okay. How do we begin to do that? Is because, number one, we're going to start breathing correctly. We're going to start working with the body. We're going to inspect and investigate the body. This is what the Mahasi method really is all about, is rising, falling, touching, sitting. The rising of the chest, the falling of the, of the breath is the out-breath. The touching is our experience of the rising and falling in the sense of the touch of the cloth, the wind, every, all of the sensations, the touch of the body. And then the sitting is our knowledge of internal uh, positions of the body. This is called in English proprioceptic. It's not in the suttas. But Mahasi does talk about it in, in rising, falling, touching, sitting. How do we know we're sitting? You've got your eyes closed. You may be all sprawled out or doing a, a snow angel. How do you know you're not doing a snow angel? How do you know you're actually sitting? You can because feel you can it. Experience it. You can feel it. A really clear example is to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Okay. I don't know if the call got broken here. Oh, are oh, you you're there? Back. Yes, I'm back. Okay, all right. Sorry, I don't know what happened. We were just doing the uh, the proprioceptic demonstration, and I said, close your eyes, and then it froze. And I said, close your eyes, close your eyes, and it was completely frozen. <laughs> all right, let's try that again. All right. So what we're going to do is close the eyes and put your hand in the wear, just one hand, it doesn't matter which one, and then wave it around a bit while your eyes are closed. Okay. Okay, and then you open your eyes and you check to see where the hand is. Okay, now you open. Is it where you thought it was? I think so, yeah. Yeah, how do you know that it was where it was? 
I can feel it. Because <laughs> you can feel it exactly. That's what we're getting at. <laughs> that we can feel the body postures. And it's kind of important to start paying attention to the body postures. Pay attention to where your hands are. Pay attention to what's going on. And not. Pay attention when in the reclining posture. When we're in the sitting posture, are we sitting straight or are we slumped? Are the legs uh, solid and comfortable or are they want the job? It, does the butt ache? All of that kind of stuff is, is part of that rising, falling, touching, sitting quality. And so this is actually part of Anapanasati step three of understanding and knowing the body. But we're not going to do that all just body, 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 because in fact, we're going to start working with all of them all at the same time. A lot of people get the idea that they have to do one step at a time. And the answer to that is you can't go into the meditation hall and take just the body, leaving the, uh, the feelings, the mind and the mind's objects in bed. Can't do that. When you go yep. into the meditation room, you got to take them all. It's the same way of life. Um, the story is the driving school. And you want to learn to drive the car, and so you go to this school. This school has a method. They teach you only steering, the first lesson. The second lesson, they teach you gears and shifting and that kind of stuff. The third lesson, they teach you acceleration, and now off you go. And on the fourth lesson, they'll teach you about braking. <laughs> if you make Don't go to that school, because you need to be able to do all of those things when you start to drive in the beginning, that's the whole point of it is, is that it's quite a lot to manage. It's quite a lot for a beginner to practice, uh, to learn how to drive a car because there's a whole lot of stuff to be done all at once. Same thing with the meditation. We need to practice one after another. One is uh, in turn as they occur so that in the very beginning, we're working with the body, with the feelings, with the mind and the mind's object. So this is how that goes. When we first wake up, when we first have sati, let us say in the Gawanka method, because I spent a lot of time with Gawanka, he had this phrase, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Okay, so basically the mind's going to wander away from the breath. Our intention, watch the breath. Guess what? The mind doesn't watch the breath. It wanders away. The first thing the student does is that he feels bad. Oh, me, I'm a failure. He goes right back into the old system. The old system of thought is, I tried something and I failed at it. Poor me. Basically, though, something really good happened, and that was sati. We woke up. You see, the mind's in hindrances most of the time anyway. So that's ordinary state of mind. Waking up to it, that's something new. Waking up to it. So we should congratulate ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, to wake up. We can, we can wake up. We can congratulate ourselves. Now, in that time when the Buddha had uh, started to eat food and his troubadours left him because he wasn't practicing the austerities anymore, before he gave them the the teaching on the uh, 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 the Dhamma uh, Chaka Bhavanta Sutta, 
he was he spent about six weeks in Bodh Gaya. And and what they say he put together there was the teachings of Paticca Samupada, forward and reverse, and re- reference to the path. And uh, he figured it all out. There was a key point in there. And that key point is the phrase that the Buddha used, Aha, I see you, Mara. This is that major point. Aha, I see you is, Aha, I'm awake to the hindrances. Aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see you, hindrance. Now, he had already practiced first jhana. He already knew that very well. In fact, he was, uh, uh, as a kid, he was practicing first jhana. That's when he came up with the story of the rose apple tree. When he was under the rose apple tree, his father, the Sakyan, was doing a plowing ceremony, and that's when he experienced first jhana. How did he experience first jhana? Somebody taught him, and that very same person who taught him that taught him all of the Rig Vedas and everything like that. We'll talk about Chanda later. Meanwhile, um, now he's under the Bodh tree, but he is actually examining this hindrance. Aha, I see you, Mara, rather than just throwing it out and getting into the first jhana. He's actually doing an investigation. He's recognizing that this is dukkha. This is suffering. I can see it. Now, because, uh aha, I see you, basically it's like this. We'll use a strong emotion like anger. We use the terminology, I'm angry. But waking up to the anger is like this. Ah, because you can see, I... And being consumed by and controlled by anger. I am the anger. This is anger. This is me. Okay. But the waking up process is, aha, I see you, anger. It okay. makes a disassociation. We break the mind separate from I am no longer me, the anger. But there is something new, the observer who is observing the anger as an objective object. So we begin to see our thoughts as just clouds in the mind, just objects. Mm-hmm. Okay, objective objects. So we can see feelings, not just verbal thoughts, but feeling thoughts as just objects okay. that yeah. they do not identify who I am. And by doing that disassociation, we pull ourselves out. And now we're going to get the mind fit for work. Sati, to wake up. Aha, I see you, anger. That aha actually is a form of gladdening the mind. It's actually a form of right effort. Okay. Wrong effort is I see it. Yeah, there it is. It's got me. I'm angry. Which is, a, which is a wake-up, because a lot of people are saying, I ain't angry. I'm not angry. I'm right. I'm not angry. You know. So they act angry, they look angry, they behave angry, they feel angry, and yet their thought is, I'm not angry. Okay. No so sleep guess... at all. Or, excuse me, no sati at all. Completely right. asleep. But we can wake up and we can see, I am angry, but that's not enough to wake up. The full waking up is to disassociate ourselves from it. 
Okay, like waking up in the morning, we actually get out of bed. That's the real waking up. We, when we really wake up, the first thing we do is get out of bed. So this is also the way we're going to practice Anapanasati, is that recognition or the noting, this in fact is unhappiness. This is in fact hindrance. This is a wandering mind. This is dwelling in the past. This is wanting something I don't have. This is putting up with things that I don't want to put up with. Or this is a loss of attention, loss of awareness. Or the number five, which is the biggest one, is this is doubt. Not sure about what I'm supposed to do. Or not sure about the practice. Things mm -hmm. like this. So these are the, this is the normal list of the five hindrances. Okay. Whenever one of those comes up, your job is to start to note. You may not even need to note which hindrance it is. All you need to note is, in fact, that's the, the, the joy of uh, Anapanasati, the way that Goenka teaches it, is, is that we let the breathing be the anchor. In other words, when I wake up, do I wake up to, to the fact that I'm no longer watching the breath? That almost always means I'm in hindrance. So let's throw that stuff out and start watching the breath again. Aha, uh -huh, I see that I walked down for the breath. Aha, uh -huh, I see that I've lost the breath. Let me take a deep breath and start again. Mm -hmm. Once we keep doing that, we begin to gladden the mind. We begin to have success. I can do this. I can wake up, come out of the hindrances, come back to the breath, take a deep breath, and relax, relax. That's the key word, to relax. Why? Because when I tell this, uh, the students to gladden the mind, some of them say, that sounds like so much work. No, it's really easy. It's not a whole lot, a whole lot of work. But we can say to them also, just relax. Okay. To throw out the hindrances, to throw out the hindrance, now that's the job that needed to be done. The mind is free from the hindrance. We're free from dukkha. Third double truth. <laughs> and we need to start to practice that so that we become aware that, in fact, we can do it. We can clean out the mind. Many students, when they do the noting in the Mahasi method, they just keep noting the same old stuff over and over again. We're talking about a real change. Hmm. A real change to, to no longer note that stuff, but to toss it out and note something that's wholesome instead. Mm. All we need to do to see it is to see that it's dukkha. We don't need to examine it anymore. Okay. All we have to do is recognize a hindrance for a hindrance. Now, as we keep practicing this, knowing that we can get the mind free from hindrances, we begin to develop a new skill. And that skill is the skill of one's right attitude. In the beginning, we start off with the attitude of this is hard. And we wind up with the attitude, this is easy. This is a piece of cake. This is really nice. In other words, we succeed this quality of success. So in the quality of relaxation, 
and over and over again the practice of relaxation you come to the uh, to the position of hot diggity dog I can be relaxed I know how to do it now I can in fact relax now basically we're just using language here to talk about a position uh, a way of doing things let's use a little bit more formal or more sutta like use of the words we have the word in Pali of sukha and pity. Have you ever heard of these two words, sukha and pity? Yeah, I think I know what pity means more than what sukha means, but I could use an explanation of both of them probably. <laughs> okay. Well, sukha and pity are both first jhana factors, right. and they are also skills listed in the Anapanasati Sutta. And that most people, when they put little numbers on them, they find that there are 16 of these things. And uh, the, uh, that's why they call them tetrads. There are four tetrads. Body, feeling, mind, mind objects has four aspects, each one. In the Vedana, in the feelings, you have sukha and pity as items to be developed as a skill. And they are both jhana factors, which means you have to develop these two things as a skill. And once you have them, then you can put them in your arsenal of uh, the jhana factors so that you can create the first jhana. But okay. suti and piti are, uh, are very highly interrelated. So let's look at sukha first. First off, sukha is the exact opposite of dukkha. It's the exact opposite of dukkha in the Pali language, though the, um, the original translators didn't quite pick that up. It's also exact opposites in the Thai language. Because Thai had been in Pali long enough over the centuries that these have become common words in the uh, Thai language. But I've also spoken to a student, he says, even in the Gujarat language, which is also a language of India that's in uh, an Indo-European language, in that language they have Dukhi and Suki. There you go. As opposites. It helps and that so, they rhyme, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, what we mean by Dukkha is unsatisfactory then what sukha means is pleasant or satisfying or satisfactory. So dissatisfying and satisfying, those are the two opposites. In hindrance, the mind is dissatisfied. It wants something or it wants to get rid of something or it wants to go someplace or it wants to fix something. All right? But when the mind is in fact in sukha, it's in a state of satisfaction. Okay, Kwam Suk, in fact, in Thailand means happiness. But the moment, Sukha, is this pleasant moment of, jo of joy or happiness. It, in fact, uh, in the Anapanasati Sutta, one of the phrases introducing it is uh, idiopada. Okay, and in fact, the Brahma Viharas, all four of the jhana, uh, excuse me, of the uh, Brahma Viharas, Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka, are all listed in the Anapanasati Sutta. Mm -hmm. For students who are practicing that, 
to pay attention to Anapanasati. If these guys who say, all oh, the metta is all over the suttas, therefore we practice metta, read about it in the Anapanasati Sutta, and you'll see that the, uh, that the Buddha is actually talking to the people practicing metta to teach them Anapanasati. Okay. Okay. So, back to idiopada. The word idia, basically the word pada is the word for foot or foundation, just like patana. Satipatthana idiapada, the foundations of uh, the power. Idia, by the way, means power. And okay. the foundations of power are the same factors as we have on the Eightfold Noble Path of investigation and, and uh, um, uh, right effort and sati. These are all uh, uh, the foundations of power. Now, the word power here um, there is referred to in the sense of spiritual powers, but in uh, when the word is in uh, Sanskrit, it's uh, not idia, but it's city. And the word city actually may have heard that as spiritual power in the sense of uh, diving into the earth and swimming, or walking on water, or um, walking through mountains or walls, things like that, the magical stuff. Right, yeah. Okay, but the spiritual powers of the Buddha is not magical. The real power of the Buddha is satisfaction, of contentment, of uh, safety, and security, and perhaps even a sense of wealth, that we Hmm. feel wealthy, not rich with money, but wealthy with life that our, our life feels complete and whole, overflowing, overflowing with the Dhamma. Okay, so this is actually the power. Now, the difference between sukha and pity is the amount of, uh, let us say, energy or uh, enthusiasm that is there, that we can be quietly, peacefully relaxed into a state of pleasure or we can be in that state of pleasure. Yeehaw! <laughs> I got it. I got it. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. That's pity. <laughs> you can bring it up and it just feels good all over. Okay. This is exactly, okay, I'll give you two real examples of that. One is at the football game and someone makes a touchdown. <laughs> and the crowd that likes that, they stand up and they cheer, yay! And they have their arms in the air and all of that winning feeling. And then they sit down and they relax. <sighs> okay, so there's Pitti and Sukha right there in action together. The next example is at uh, um, Times Square on New Year's Eve, especially 2000 or 2001. They couldn't tell which was the century. And the ball comes down, and they start to count down. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. And when the ball reaches zero, the whole crowd erupts. Right? New year. Ha, oh, finally, we're finished with that old year. Gosh, it was such a bad year. We're going to have a good one this time. Yeehaw! Okay. And then a second or two later, they mellow into holding arms and rocking back and forth to the tune of Old Lang Syne. And everything is sabai. So pity and sukha work together. By the way, the word sabai is a Thai word. And it means 
uh, basically everything is okay. Sabai, suka, okay. All right. So this is the way that we're going to be practicing meditation because of um, that pity has that quality of we can do this. It has the quality of a winner. Hmm. All right. This is where the fourth aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path comes in, and that is right attitude, where we develop the attitude of being a winner, that we can do this. Okay, so these are the facts, and when we bring those four factors together, right view, right effort, right sati, and right attitude, that's what brings about that unification of mind, then that has the features of high-quality sila. Okay. Because we live our life in a high-class way. Because the mind is noble. And the mind is noble because we have, possibly at that point, the number one ingredient that is so missing that winds up being there is that quality of the lion, the winner, the attitude Mm -hmm. of can-do. I can do this. And so uh, the first step on the noble path, the first step to sotapan, you probably heard that word sotapan meaning stream mm-hmm. entry. The first step of sotapan, the first knowledge is that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, the student can clean his mind out and be here in this present moment to see things as they really are. That's the first knowledge. That's the first awakening. Anyone who has that, um, let us see, that confidence in themselves, anyone who has that noble uh, attitude that can do, I can do this. I can manage this situation. I can handle it. That's the first, that's the first step of nobility. That's the first step of the Buddha's path. Okay. No matter how obstructed the mind is, I can clean it out. So the student said, yeah, I cleaned it out, and he came back back. Okay, clean it out again. All right, I cleaned it out again, and he came right back. He keeps coming back, and he's coming back, and he's coming back. That's the attitude of a loser. The attitude of a winner, yeah, it came back, and it went out again. It comes again, I'm going to get it and throw it back out again. He's out of here. Okay, that's the right attitude. Right. The attitude that you can do this. This is the first thing that we have to, not the first thing, this is the first result of our practice. Okay. The first result of our practice is the skill of sati is the beginning of the practice. And the foundation of the beginning of the practice is right view. So as our view increases, so does our skill level of sati. We become more and more determined to wake up, to see what's going on, to not let one thing get past us that we don't see it. We don't notice it or note it. So this is what we really mean by noting. Not that we're making a list or that we're telling a story about something, but that we can actually see what's going on. And when we see what's going on, the mind has wandered away from the breath. Never mind, I can come back and start to breathing again. And I can begin to start having wholesome thoughts. The thoughts that we will have would be then that are wholesome for the beginning, because it's running about an hour and a half now, so we'll finish up soon. Okay. And so um, the point is that it's all about how we're thinking. 
And if we can think wholesome thoughts, the easiest way to, to notice what are wholesome thoughts are the thoughts that are happening about what's happening right now. This is a nice moment. I feel the wind of the fan on my arm. I can feel the rise and fall of the chest. And so we begin to notice what's happening in the here now. How do we feel? And when the mind begins to think, what kind of thoughts are they? Are they wholesome thoughts or not wholesome thoughts? We can investigate the state of the mind. Is the mind sharp and fit for work or is it dull? Is it sharp? Is it uh, uh, pliant? Is it capable of uh, seeing the hindrances and throw them out? And so this is the four foundations of mindfulness and we work with that with Anapanasati. But in okay. fact, Sati itself is step nine, to begin to experience the mind. In this case, the experience of the mind is, is not watching the breath, is it? Then we go back to step one of Anapanasati and start watching the breath. As we gladden the mind and say, aha, I caught you, wandering away and throwing the actual hindrances out, that's step 10 of Anapanasati. Laying the groundwork then for step uh, five of Anapanasati is Sukha. And when we get to the point of, well, I can really do this, that's when the pity starts to arise. And so we're actually, by practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, we're practicing it with Anapanasati with the intention of bringing about the first jhana. Okay. And so all we have to do is keep throwing the stuff out of the mind that has nothing to do with this present moment and begin to tell yourself how good you feel, how nice this is to be free. How good you feel. Oh, it does feel relaxed. Oh, I don't have to think about any problem at all. I'm out of service right now. I don't have to service any of the requests. <laughs> what request? The request I can think up. Right. And every request I think up, I say, sorry, out of service right now. I'm having my ball. Don't need to think about that. I'm going to think about what we're doing right now. And so this is it's, it's a new way of practice, and yet it's not. This is actually the Mahasi method. It's just that the guys who are teaching the Mahasi method are leaving a couple of things out hmm. that were being implied in the, in the Asian teachings, but in the Western teachings, it applies the exact opposite, that you're supposed to work hard and get no reward for a long time. For the Asians expect a reward right now. Yeah, okay. I watched the breath feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and so that also is kind of a change of view. The change of the view is instead of dukkha, 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 I'm examining dukkha, I'm looking at dukkha, I'll eventually figure out dukkha, into, aha, I see you, dukkha, out you go. Okay. Dukkha, dukkha, naroda. Take a deep breath and feel good. Intentionally bring yourself into a state of pleasure. By doing so, you're controlling the breathing, you're controlling the mind, you're controlling the mind's thoughts, and now you're beginning to even control the feelings. You're beginning to actually allow yourself to feel good. This is the way to practice. It does sound better. <laughs> we'll give it a try. You can actually do this while you're doing it with the, uh, uh, um, the group or the online session that you're doing. I don't mind anything. Uh, uh, I'm not telling you you have to quit 
anything you're doing, but you can add these few ingredients that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Number one ingredient that's missing is that gladdening the mind. Another one that's missing is actually throwing those hindrances out. So the sutras are loaded down with you got to throw out the hindrances, and we'll talk about some of those. Right. Okay, in fact, that sutta number 48, where no matter how obstructed with hindrance the mind gets, we can clean it out. That's in the sutta. Why is it then that the meditation teachers don't talk about throwing out these hindrances? And gladdening the mind. Nor do they talk about taking deep breaths. This is Anapanasati in the real Anapana Pranayana uh, style of deep breathing. Not shallow, just noticing breath, because then the mind wanders away really easy. With that shallow breathing, the mind gets dull. It's not sharp. Now our meditation goes deep, but it has mm-hmm. that quality of deep looking for something that, um, that is actually clouded in hindrance, and we're not really sharp. We can't wake up really well. So make sure that when you wake up that you really wake up enough to really get out of whatever the mind is doing. Uh I see you. Out you go. I want to take a deep breath and feel really good. And I'm not going to worry about the problem I was trying to solve. Yeah, that makes sense. So when when you're following the breath, um, should you be looking in a specific spot? Like a lot of people say, like the tip of the nostril or the abdomen? All over the place. No, no, um, that is a technique that has a use. But that's not the technique for getting first jhana. That's the technique for going from the first end to the second jhana. But we don't need to do oh. that. No. We need to follow the sutta, Anapanasati sutta, experiencing the whole body. Mm. Not a nose tip. That, uh, that seems like a lot to keep track of, the whole body, you know. <laughs> One piece at a time. As it... As it comes to note, keeping mm-hmm. aware, keeping focused on the body, and you'll see this, and you'll see that, and you'll see the breath, and you'll see all kinds of things. You begin actually to see the feelings because the feelings in, um, um, manifest themselves in bodily chemistry that can be experienced. So the students then can begin to feel the fear as it arises. Okay. They can, they can feel anxiety in the body. Because they're paying attention to the body. If they're not paying attention to the body, they're not likely to be able to see or experience that uh, anxiety or fear or sadness. Sadness is normally deep in the gut. Fear is normally high in the chest. Anxiety is generally in this area. Okay. Anger is just all over, especially the arms and the chest and face and everything. And that comes right out of our past. It's part of our genes. Why does, it, why does the neck get tense and all of that? The answer can be uh, lies in why does a, a male lion, a fully grown male lion, why does he have a mane? To protect the neck. For protection of the neck, exactly. Why? Because if a lion takes his prey down, like the gazelle, by grabbing on their butt and getting to the throat and then doing the blow, the kill, is at the neck. How do you think lions fight with each other when they're trying to take over the leader of the pack. Mm. They go for the throat of each other, right? 
which line is going to win in that game? The one who's got the heaviest mane. Mm. It's all about evolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, in fact, the answer of why do we want to watch the body is because the body is going to teach us about our feelings. Okay. And so we begin to watch and note the body. We begin to see this stuff. And always we're going to work on having just wholesome thoughts. Thoughts about the here now. Thoughts of non-wanting. Thoughts of uh, being satisfied. Thoughts of uh, being harmless to yourself. Thoughts of friendship. That in fact, these thoughts that we're having can be called metta. The Anapanasati metta is becoming friends with yourself. Mm. Becoming kind to yourself. Coming out of the warfare of the dialogue in the mind. Of telling yourself what to do and then feeling bad about not wanting to do it. And we'll talk about that at a later detail. So I think that you've got enough now that you can begin to practice. You can begin to shift your focus away from telling yourself a story about what's going on into actually changing what's going on because you can see it. Okay. All right. That is a lot to remember and look through here. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that we did the recording then so you can review it and uh, get some value out of it. Yeah. So um, should I call you again at some point? How, does, how do you like to do this? Well, we need to cover two little points left. One is how, when to call, and the other one is when you're going to practice. Since you've already got a practice going, well, right now, I'd say continue with what you're doing because I don't want to lay too much out on you on the first day. Okay, okay, so continue what you're doing, and I'd say give me a call in a couple of days or three. Okay. Maybe go for twice a week for a while. Okay. So just any time, like you said, 9 to 5, Thai time? Yeah, daytime, Thailand time. Yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Well, thank you. This has been very informative. <laughs> okay, Brian. I'm glad that you got something out of it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'll give you a call probably in a few days, like you said. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll see you then. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> have a good one. I'll have two. <laughs>